I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the ninth chapter and the 35th verse, the 35th verse in the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Because I think the emphasis should be put on both words. Hear him. Hear him. Now I call your attention this evening to this remarkable incident in the life in the earthly life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is generally referred to and described as the Transfiguration. But I want not so much to deal with the great incident itself, though we shall, of course, deal with it, but rather I want to concentrate attention on what we are told in this 35th verse, about this voice that came out of the cloud, out of heavens, uttering these momentous and memorable words. Now, here we have, of course, the very essence of the Christian message. We are accustomed to talk today in terms of pinpointing things. Well, here there is a verse that pinpoints the very central thing in the gospel. It's a light from heaven itself shining upon it and calling our attention to it. Let's look at it in this way. This is a part, of course, of the great message of the whole Bible from beginning to end. We've been considering this biblical message. We were doing so before Christmas, leading up to Christmas. We spent several Sunday nights in the Old Testament. And every time we saw the same thing. This Bible, this book which we call the Bible, is God's word to men. It's God speaking to men. That's what it's all about. And that is why I keep on saying that it is the most relevant book in the world tonight, and a book that should be read most urgently by every one of us. Every thinking person today must be very gravely and deeply concerned about the position in which we find ourselves as a nation, and as one of the great company of nations making up the world. We read in our papers of the grave concern. The whole future of this country may be in the balance. Industrially, I mean. Our whole way of life may be in a very precarious position. And there are various reasons being put forward for that. And we are all involved in that. But you see, we don't preach about that. We don't offer advice to employers and implied. We don't express our opinions about strikes and things like that. Why? Well, simply for this reason, that we don't believe in medicating symptoms. We believe in treating the disease. And the disease is the thing with which the Bible treats. You see, even if there were no problems in this peculiar form in which they're confronting us today, the biblical message would still be true. It was needed quite as much a hundred years ago in the halcyon days of the mid-Victorian period when everything seemed to be all right and when war was almost unthinkable. The Crimean War was just uh, an isolated event, as it were. There was that great Pax Britannica, call it what you like, running from the Napoleonic Wars to the War of 1914-1918. And life seemed to be so smooth, but it wasn't. 
for all who'd got eyes to see. There were things happening then which are responsible for what is happening now. For you and I are living in an age which is just reaping what was sown by those who went before us. There were problems which were not faced. Why were they not faced? Well, because of sin. Because of selfishness. Because of self-centeredness. And here we are in our predicament. And the world is in trouble. And there's only one word, I say, that speaks to our condition. And that is the word of this book. Now, it's no part of the preaching of the gospel simply to condemn the way in which men and women are living. That gets you nowhere. It's no use going to a poor, helpless drunkard and just reading him a lecture on the evil effects of alcohol. He probably knows all about it. It doesn't help him. And as we see the masses today living a godless and an irreligious life, it's no part of the preaching of the gospel just to make fun of them or to condemn them. That doesn't help them. It doesn't help anybody. They're victims, according to the Bible. Our business is to show them exactly why they are what they are and a way of deliverance. It's no use just appealing to people to live a better life. That's never worked. That's what the world outside the Bible does. That's what your social movements do. That's what your cultural movements do. That's what philosophy has always done. Now, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible has got a unique message, and it's a radical one. And as we've been seeing, its view is this. That man is as he is, and the world is as it is, because of sin. Because man does not listen to the voice of God. And all the troubles and the calamities have resulted from that. The fall of men into sin. But, and this is the message, in spite of that, God hasn't turned his back upon the world. From the very moment that men fell, God came to him and began to speak to him. And we've been spending our Sunday nights in considering the various ways in which God did that. We've seen many of them. He spoke by direct action. He spoke in history. He spoke by doing things to them. He sent a flood and destroyed the world. He smashed the Tower of Babel. These are historic events. God was speaking through events. But he not only spoke through events, he spoke directly to men. He called a man like Abram, gave him a message, gave him a mandate, if you like, gave him a program. He called a man of the name of Moses. He took him up into a mountain and gave him his holy law and told him to take it down to the people. God has been speaking. God has been addressing men. And God all along has been really just saying the one thing. He's been calling men and women back to himself. He's been urging them to realize that it is because of their alienation from him that they are in their troubles and that they'll continue in them until they come back to him. He's been repeating it from century to century, from generation to generation. He raised a mighty succession of prophets. He prepared for himself a nation called the Jews, to whom he gave his law and his word, and through them he's spoken to the whole world. God has gone on doing this. And all along I say the message has been just that one message, that it doesn't matter what you do, until you come back to God, nothing will be right. And you see, this message is as urgent this evening as it's ever been. It's been going on for all these centuries, and yet the world is still in trouble. Why? Well, it simply won't listen. But this is the amazing thing, and it's the message of this book, that in spite of all our blindness and our folly, our rebellion, our arrogant refusal, God still goes on speaking. That's the great story of the Old Testament. And it's an amazing thing to me how anybody can read it without 
being struck and moved by the patience and the long-suffering of God. What impatient creatures you and I are. We are prepared perhaps to forgive people a few times, but then we reach a point when we say that person's hopeless. And there we finish with it. But God has gone on. Look at his patience with the children of Israel. Look at his long-suffering. And you see, God is still the same. Now I say that is the great central message of this book. And here in this particular statement we're looking at this evening, it's put before us in a most extraordinary and striking manner. God has been speaking throughout the centuries, through patriarch, through kings, through prophets, through actions. But here he is now doing a most extraordinary and strange thing. He speaks from heaven, and this is what he says, this pointing to a solitary person. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. Listen to him. That's the message. Now, in other words, you see, this statement directs us to the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this, I say, is the essence of Christianity. What is the Christian message? Well, the Christian message is about Jesus Christ. The whole message of Christianity is really summarized in these two words, Hear Him. Now let me put it to you in this form. The whole position, the whole message depends upon this person. You noticed how the Apostle Peter put it when as an old man he wrote that last letter of his to a certain number of Christian people. He says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we have spoken unto you about his coming and his glory, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And when we were with him, he says, in the holy mount, we heard that voice from the excellent glory, saying. Now all that being interpreted in modern language can be put in this form. Christianity is entirely about this person. It is to tell men and women about him. It is to call their attention to him. It's to ask them to listen to him, to come to him, and to listen to him and to obey him. I wonder whether we're all clear about that. It seems to me that there are many still who confuse Christianity and cunningly devised fables. There are still some who seem to regard the whole thing as a sort of myth. What I mean by that is that they say, oh, well, these facts, of course, don't matter. We are now so learned and so clever. We know that these things didn't happen. But after all, uh, we believe in certain principles and in certain teachings. They say these stories are myths. We believe in the essential teaching. But as I see it, that's the very antithesis of Christianity. This isn't a matter of cunningly devised fables. This is a, a question of facts. In other words, Christianity isn't a teaching. Christianity isn't just another of the philosophies. It isn't just another idea about life and how it's to be lived and what's to be done about it. It isn't good advice. It isn't primarily an appeal to us to do anything at all. Now, we're at the beginning of a year still. And I prophesied last Sunday night that no doubt many in the name of Christianity would simply be giving good advice to this nation and to the people. And I was a true prophet. Many did it. But that's not Christianity. The business of Christianity, I say, is not just to tell people how to live and how to pull together and to believe in peace and to talk a lot about the atomic bomb and things like that, not at all. It's to talk about Jesus Christ. 
This person on the mountain who suddenly was transfigured and his very clothing began to shine with a brightness beyond the shining of the sun itself and in such a manner that no fuller on earth can whiten them. That's what we are told. It's all about that. The world is full of good advice. The world is full of its moralities and its philosophies and all its teachings and all its methods and all its schemes. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is Christ, this person. This, says the voice of God from heaven, this, this person, God calls attention to him. In other words, my dear friends, the whole subject before us is this historic person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now you notice when you read the book of the Acts of the Apostles that they who were the first preachers after all and to whom we have as our only pattern and standard when they went round preaching what did they do? Well, they preached Jesus. Jesus and the resurrection. That was their sermon. They spoke about him. I defy you as you turn to that book of the Acts of the Apostles to see any one of those preachers inciting the people to sign petitions and to send them up to the government at Rome or to ask for this reform or to see that certain action was taken by the senators. Not a word. What were these apostles? Well, they were witnesses to Jesus Christ. That's what he calls them himself. After his resurrection and before he ascended into heaven, he gathered them together and he said, Look here, stay where you are in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. And then you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Samaria and unto the utmost parts of the earth. Witnesses unto me. And they listened to him and they obeyed him and in ten days' time the Holy Ghost came upon them and they were filled with a new spirit and a new power and Peter begins to speak and what does he speak about? He speaks about Jesus Christ. That's his message, that's his good news. He doesn't merely offer good advice to the people of Jerusalem. He talks about this person whom you, he said, have taken with cruel hands and have crucified him. You've killed the prince of life. You didn't know what you were doing. He speaks about Jesus. And so do they all. It's their one message everywhere. Because it is the greatest message in the world, the profoundest message, the most momentous message, the most urgent message. Here is something which the world has never known before. This is my beloved son. Hear him. In other words, those first preachers went round and they spoke about him and they said, He sent us out, it is he who has commissioned us. And he has told us to go and bear witness unto him, to tell you what he did while he was here, how he died, how he rose again, how he sent this spirit. That's our message, nothing else. He sent them out to preach. And he told them to preach about him. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. God has already witnessed this. You be witnesses unto me. And therefore what they did was to go round and they repeated these words that came out of the cloud, out of the excellent glory. They pleaded with men and women to listen, to hear him. And that is what I have to say to you this evening. Are you in trouble? Are you distressed? About yourself or about the world or about someone else? Are you finding life hard and almost unendurable? Well, the message, whatever your condition is this, hear him. Have you come into this service pleased with yourself and self-satisfied? I say it's still more to you. Hear him. 
whatever your state or condition, the message is still needed and the message is always, hear him. Well, says someone, why should I hear him? Why should I listen unto him? What reasons can you give me for doing so? Well, let me suggest some to you. Hear him because he is who he is. This is my beloved son. This Jesus of Nazareth. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this the son of Joseph and Mary whom we know? Isn't this the fellow who started preaching, who's never been to the schools? Who is this? That's what men asked. That's what they said. But here comes a voice out of the excellent glory, out of heaven itself. And the voice says, this is my beloved son. Now, my friends, the whole of Christianity depends upon this. That is why Peter, you see, as an old man, wrote in that particular way. He says, I know that my life in this world is not going to be extended much longer. I've got to put off this tabernacle I'm going, but I want you to remember after I've gone the things I've said to you. And what I've said to you is this, is to hold on to him and to listen to him and to follow him. Why? Well, because we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we spoke to you about him. Listen, says Peter, I was with him on the holy mount. And our whole position this evening depends upon the witness of the apostles. Let's be quite clear about that. Christianity is an historical religion. That's why it's so different from Mohammedanism and Hinduism and Confucianism and all the rest of them. They are not historical religions. They're philosophies, they're teachings. The whole case here depends upon a series of historical events and facts. The Holy Mount, says Peter. I was there. I listened, I heard, I'm a witness to it. And this, therefore, is the most astounding thing that the world can hear tonight. That God's only begotten Son has been in this world. That's the message of Christianity. Have you any proofs of it, says someone? Well, yes, I start with this very proof that is given here, the thing that Peter reduces. There he is, look at him, Jesus of Nazareth, born in that stable, you remember, in Bethlehem and put in the manger. This astonishing boy that could uh, refute and confute and confound the doctors of the law at the age of twelve, the carpenter of Nazareth. The man who began to preach at the age of 30. There he is. And uh, this is what I see happening to him. As he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. And his raiment was white and glistering. Some of these other evangelists describe it in a still more striking form. They give us more of the details of what happened to him there. For instance, they say things like this. He was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Now this happened in the presence of Peter and James and John, you remember. Our Lord took them up onto the mountain. They'd been following him, they'd listened to him, they'd heard his words, they'd seen his miracles... And they were in doubts about him. Peter at Caesarea Philippi just before had answered the question when Christ asked him, Well, whom do you say that I am? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But still they were not clear about it because a few minutes later he'd said to them, The Son of Man must be put to death. And Peter said, Far be this from thee, Lord, and had to be rebuked. And the Lord said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. 
The Holy Spirit had revealed it to him. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee. But my Father which is in heaven, says Christ to him. Peter thinks he knows. He doesn't. He doesn't understand. And they go up with him onto the mount. And there they watch him kneeling in prayer. And suddenly he's transfigured. And a light such as never was on sea nor land begins to stream not only from his face but from his very clothing. He was transfigured before them. And then to their amazement they see Moses and Elias speaking to him. They'd come out of the glory. They'd been dead for centuries. But here they are. They're speaking to him and obviously speaking with deference. They look up to him, as it were, and they speak to him about his death that he's going to accomplish. Who is this? This Jesus, this carpenter, this person, this human being, as it were. What is this that's happening to him? And why do these come out of the glory in order to speak to him? Who is he? And there's only one answer to the question, this is my beloved son. That voice spoke about him in the same manner on other occasions. You remember at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The voice of God, the voice of heaven. Peter vouches for it. He says, I was there, I heard it. I wasn't speaking at random. I wasn't merely pitching tales in my mind and trying to interest you. I wasn't holding myths before you. I was there. I saw it. I saw him. But then as he goes on to say in that epistle, it isn't only dependent upon that. There is the word of prophecy made more sure. You needn't base it all only upon my word and upon my testimony, says Peter. I was there, I did see it, but listen, go back to your Old Testament, read your prophets, and see what's happened. The prophecies have been fulfilled. Read the prophecies about the coming Messiah. Where is he to be born? Micah says it's in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. What is he to be like? Well, he's to be a wonderful counselor. Take all the details one by one and work them out and you'll find that he fulfills them every one. His birth, his life, his miracles, his death. He was despised. He was rejected of men. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He made his grave with the rich. It's all been literally fulfilled. Don't merely base it on me, says Peter. You have the word of prophecy made more sure. Read your prophets. See the fulfillment. And then in addition to all that, you've got these records of his life in the four Gospels. His words. His works. Who is this? Is he merely a carpenter? Is he merely a man? Can you account for the persistence of Christianity and of the church if that is so? Here's the evidence. This attested by God himself in a most signal manner. Very well then the message of Christianity is this. This is my beloved son. But have you nothing further by way of proof, says someone? Well, yes, I have. And perhaps the greatest proof of all. Cruel men hated him. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the doctors of the law particularly. This upstart, this imposter. And they so hated him that they conspired to put him to death and they succeeded in persuading the rebel to shout out away with him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. So they took him and they condemned him and they crucified him and he died and they took down the body and they placed it in a grave and rolled a stone over it and sealed it and put soldiers to guard it. And yet on the morning of the third day when the women and others 
went there to see what his body was like. They found the tomb was empty, the stone was rolled away, and the body had disappeared. The grave clothes were left, but he'd gone. The resurrection. And he appeared unto these chosen witnesses for forty days, and then they saw him ascending unto heaven. The resurrection declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He's risen. This is the evidence. And it was because of this these men went round and preached him. What's it mean? It means this. Into this world of sin and shame, of trouble and of confusion. God the eternal Son has come. That's the message. That's my message tonight. I know just a little bit about history. We've been going through the Old Testament history. We could have gone outside it. We could have dealt with the secular history. We could have treated of the rising of the various great dynasties. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. We're aware of certain of the facts. And we could have talked about that. And we could have said, now, this is interesting. Here is men's predicament. What have been the attempts? What have been the attempts to solve it? There have been great chieftains, great princes, great warriors, great thinkers and philosophers, and this is what they've said. But the world is still the same. But that isn't our message. Our message is just to say that nearly 2,000 years ago, God sent his own son into the world. All others have been men. All others have been but human beings. The great philosopher, the great king, the great captain, the great warrior. Men, great men, many of them. Yes, but here is someone different. This is my beloved son. God in the flesh. God, men. God has done something about the world and its predicament. God has sent his own son into it. This. That is why it's important for you and for me to listen to him. Amidst all the babel of vices that are confusing wisdom in the world tonight. Isn't this the supreme tragedy? That men and women are not listening to him. There he is. He's been in the world and he has spoken. And God has said, listen to him. Hear him. And men and women are listening to everything else. And the confusion continues. And the desperation increases. Hear him, my friend. Here is not a man. Here is God, men. Here is God, the eternal Son, come down amongst us. Here is one who has come out of the everlasting bosom and has taken on human nature and has lived as a man amongst men. It's God speaking. That in itself is sufficient reason for us to listen to him. But let me tell you something else. Hear him because of what he says and because of what he does. What does he say? Well, he says, I am the light of the world. He doesn't hesitate to say it. I am the light of the world. We know about the darkness, don't we? The great quest of men is for the light. Where can it be found? The light on my own personal problems. The light on moral problems. The light on the whole problem of men. Light, where is it? Where can it be found? He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Listen to him again and you'll hear him saying this. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost. 
He means it's gone astray and it can't find its way back. It doesn't know where it is nor what to do. Lost, like a sheep, he says. He paints a picture in a parable of a lost sheep. Ninety-nine are all right. One has gone away and wandered into a wilderness and can't get back. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Lost its bearings, lost its sense of direction, lost its understanding, lost hope, lost everything. Here's a good reason for hearing him, isn't it? Here's a wonderful reason for listening to him. Are you lost in confusion? Not knowing what to make of yourself or to do with yourself. That's what he says. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Listen to him again. He says, Come unto me, all ye that are where, that are, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know what he's talking about? All ye that labor and are heavy laden, staggering along under a load of sin, under anxieties and troubles and problems, labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, he says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. What a wonderful reason for listening to him. But again I hear him saying. I came not to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. For they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Oh, do you know what he's talking about? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know what sin is, don't you? Is there anybody who can speak to you when you're being lashed by an accusing conscience? Have you discovered the mystic secret of how to silence your conscience? When it points its finger at you and reminds you of your past and what you've been and what you've done. Do you know the way out? Is there anybody who can deliver you? Listen to him. He has come to call sinners to repentance. And he was known as the friend of publicans and of sinners. But listen, he says this also. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Have you begun to realize that what your, your greatest need is your need of God? To know God, to be able to pray to God, to be strengthened by God, to be blessed by God, to find God. Well, if you have, don't waste your time with anybody else. Because he says that no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Ah, you believe in God. You believe in God as creator and sustainer of the world. You believe in God as a great power. But tell me, do you know God as your Father? You'll never know him as Father except in and through Jesus Christ. That's why the Father said, This is my beloved Son, hear him. No man cometh to the Father, he says, but by me. Those are some of his words. We'll consider others on some future occasion. But here are some other reasons for listening to him and for hearing him. Look at what he did. Read your Gospels, my dear friend, and see them, the lame and the blind and the halt and the deaf and the leprous and even the dead. He speaks and listening to his voice. New life the dead receive. Go through the records. Look at them weary and worn and sad. 
crippled by disease, outcasts from society, deaf, blind every conceivable thing. He speaks. He can even silence a storm at sea. He can rebuke the wind and the waves, and they have to listen. Hear him, my friend. Oh, those were the things that he did in his life, but consider what he's been doing since his death and since his resurrection and since his ascension. Listen to him, says the voice from heaven. Hear him. Why? Well, look what he did to the apostles. Look at a man like this Simon Peter, whose epistle we read just now. Look at him. The self-confident, the man so full of braggadocio, the man of supreme self-confidence, the impulsive Peter, and yet weak as water. The man who says one moment, though all desert thee, I will never desert thee, even if it means going through death with thee. And yet in a few hours, a servant girl challenges him and says, Aren't you from Galilee? Don't you belong to him? And he said, No. He denied him three times with oaths and cursing. That's the sort of men Simon Peter was. A blunderer. A braggart. A muddle thinker who didn't understand. Has his flashes and then loses them. But look at him in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Look at him in his epistles. Read the story of the men and see the transformation. He becomes a new man. Speaks with boldness even in Jerusalem. In spite of all the authorities. Defies them. Becomes a rock. Stable and dependable. Bold and fearless. A man who gladly died for the name of Christ later on. What is it that made the difference to him? There's only one answer. He obeyed what God said from the excellent glory on the Mount of Transfigurations. He heard Christ. He listened to him. He obeyed him. He went after him. And this is what Christ did to him. And he did the same to Saul of Tarsus. There he meets him on the road. And he hears the word, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And baffled and bewildered and amazed, he says, Who art thou, Lord? And back came the answer, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Paul heard him. He listened to him. He believed him. And the blaspheming Pharisee becomes the great apostle to the Gentiles, the new men in Christ Jesus. That's what happens when you listen to him. And it's been the same ever since. I could take you down the centuries and pick out the great mighty men of God that stand out like mighty mountain peaks. And what's their secret? Well, they've heard him. That was, you remember, precisely the very method by which the great Augustine of Hippo was converted. That great outstanding genius, that brilliant philosopher, who nevertheless was living an immoral life and kept his mistress. And he gets troubled, he's disturbed. He's been listening to Christian preaching and the conflict begins and he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's wretched. He sits in the garden and suddenly in his desperation he hears the voice, rise and read. And he rushes into the house and he picks up the book and there it is in the 13th of Romans. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, Put it all off and make no provision for the flesh. And he heard and he listened and he obeyed. And he became that great doctor in the Christian church. That's what's happened to all of them. Come down, Luther, Calvin, Knox. 
Whitfield and the Wesleys, the Puritans and all the rest. Here's their secret. They've listened to him. They've heard him. They've believed him to be the Son of God. And they've gone after him. That's the reason for listening to him. Well, then I end with this final reason. Hear him, says the voice of God. And the final reason for obeying is this. He is God's beloved Son, but He is also God's last word. Moses and Elias there appear and speak with Him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who are they? They're the representatives of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets. And what did they talk about? They all talked about Him. Moses spoke about me, he says. He said another prophet will arise. Elias, the first of the prophets, what are they speaking about? Well, they're speaking about him. They all point forward to him. But he doesn't point forward. He points to himself. He says, come unto me. He doesn't say as they said, wait until the Messiah comes. He says, I that speak unto thee am he. Come unto me. Ye have heard that it has been said by them of old time, but I say unto you. That's his speech. I say it with reverence. Even the Holy Spirit speaks about him. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak about himself. He glorifies Christ. Our Lord said he would. He said, he shall glorify me. He points back to him. He was sent to illuminate him. To enable these men to bear witness unto him. And he opens our eyes to see him. What you need, my friend, is not a vision or some ecstasy or some wonderful feeling inside you. What you need is to see and to hear Jesus Christ. He's God's last word. No longer prophets and kings and patriarchs and seers. God sends his own son. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And that is what makes the preaching of the gospel so urgent this evening. If this world should last another thousand years, it will never be offered anything beyond Jesus Christ. God has spoken finally in him. Every other kingdom can be shaken and has, be shaken, as has been shaken. Here is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's an everlasting gospel. Let the world go on and roll on. Let fresh discoveries be made. Let men become still more wonderful with all his science. The world will remain as it is and there will be nothing offered except him, this He is God's last word to men. Nothing after Christ. Nothing beyond Christ. Because in him, God has given his own son, has given himself. And therefore I say to you this evening, that if you don't listen to this son of God, you will continue as you are, you will die in your sins, and you will go to hell. Which means a continuation of what you are now, but much worse, because there'll be no hope. What's written over the portals of hell, according to Dante, is this, all ye that enter here, abandon hope! The Son of God himself has said that there's a great gulf fixed, eternally fixed, between heaven and hell.
And as long as the world does not listen to him, it will continue as it is. There is no hope, isn't it obvious, that there is no hope apart from him. But in him, there is eternal hope. My dear friend, I can't let you go, therefore, without asking you a simple question as I conclude. Have you heard him? Have you listened to him? Have you heard what he's got to say about a self-righteous, proud Pharisee? Have you heard what he's got to say about people who rely on their good lives and all the wonderful things they do? He condemns them with withering scorn. Have you heard him? Are you still in your sins? Are you still mastered by them and controlled by the devil? If you are, you haven't heard him. Because if you hear him and listen to him, you'll be delivered from that. Not that you'll become sinless and perfect, but you'll no longer be under the dominion of the devil. Are you weary and heavy laden? Well, if you are, it must be that you're not listening to him. Because if you listen to him, you'll have rest. Are you afraid of death and the grave? Are you horrified at the thought of them? If so, you haven't heard him. Because, you know, he's taken the sting out of death. And he can enable us to smile in the very face of death. Have you heard him? Oh, I'll put it in a final word in this way. This is what he says to all. If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. Do you know that your sins are forgiven? If you don't, you haven't heard him. Because what he says is this, that though you may have sinned to the very dregs, that he has died for your sins. If you say, but I'm not good enough, you haven't heard him. He tells you that he's come to die for people who are not good enough. The Son of Man has come, he says, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom. For many. He has come the good shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. Have you heard him? Have you heard him telling you that he's died for you? Died for your sins? Oh, if you've heard him, rejoice in salvation. Rejoice in sins forgiven. Have you heard him telling you that he has come to deliver his people from their sins? Are you being delivered? Are you delivered from that self-centeredness? Deny yourself, he says. Take up the cross, doesn't matter what the world says, and follow me. Have you gone after him? Is it your supreme desire tonight to know him and to walk closely with him? Wouldn't you like to live as he lived and go through this world as he went? He invites you to do it. Have you heard him? Come, he says. Follow me. Hear him this evening. The Son of God. The Savior of your soul. Do you hear the voice from the excellent glory at this moment saying to you, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Hear him. Do what he tells you. Go after him. Amen.